This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ZCNYC. Thanks for listening. Good morning. This is the 79th case from the Blue Cliff Record, Tosu's All Sounds. There's a pointer to this koan. When his great function manifests before you, it doesn't keep to patterns and rules. He captures you alive without exerting superfluous... Super, super, super how do you pronounce it? Superfluous. <laughs> I'm being superfluous, but it's superfluous effort. But say, who has ever acted this way? To test, I'm citing this old case. Look. A monastic asked Tozu, all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha, right or wrong? Tozu said, right. The monastic said, teacher, doesn't your asshole make farting sounds? (laughs) Tozu then hit him. (laughs) Again, the monastic asked, coarse words or subtle talk all returns to the primary meaning, right or wrong? Tosu said, right. The monastic said, can I call you an ass, teacher? Tosu then hit him. So Tosu Datang, his dates are 819 to 914, was a great master, very direct teacher, as you can begin to pick up from this koan. Um... He was, uh, he, he practiced for many, many years, uh, realized, deeply realized himself, and then he built a thatched hut and remained obscure for more than 30 years. But uh, usually teachers like this can't hide themselves, at least in those years in China. So there are a number of stories just to give you a sense of him. Um, so one day, uh, Chao Chao, who himself was a great master, and who after he realized himself, of which he did a number of times, but at a certain point when he was, I think in his 60s, maybe 70, he went on long pilgrimages and visited other Zen masters, famous masters, to kind of refine his understanding, test them. So uh, one day, Chao Chao came to visit him, and um, Tozu had left the, the monastery, um, and then um, later Tozu returned, and he was carrying a jug of oil, and Chao Cho, uh, Joshu of Mu fame, said, Long have I heard of Tozu, but since coming here, all I've seen is an old-timer, an old man, uh, bringing oil. Tozu said, You only see an old man bringing oil, but you haven't yet recognized Tozu. Chao Cho said, who is Tozu? Tozu lifted up the jug and yelled, Oil! Oil! Chao Cho asked, What do you say about the one who undergoes the great death and thus attains life? Tozu said, He can't make the journey at night. He must arrive in the daylight. 
chapter said, I've long con- committed thievery, but you're worse than me. So you have to understand this in the Zen context of what teachers steal from students. A monastic asked Tozu, what about the golden manacles that are not open? What's putting you in prison? They're golden, so that could be Zen. Tozu said, they're open. So, The challenge for us is living a life that upholds our Buddha nature, that allows us through this practice, or however we do it, to see into what's fundamentally real, and then live in the relative world, which um, is confusing, has levels of complexity, and uh, inherently produces suffering. And so it's not so easy to live within this karmic world, the world we seem to know so well, and to respond out of a depth of practice, out of realization, out of a moral and ethical perspective that is true and real and doesn't depend on anything outside ourselves. And so the the usual way of understanding that is to practice and realize the Buddhist precepts, which represent, you know, one leg of the three-legged stool of wisdom, uh, samadhi, uh, the the precepts, uh, and what's the third leg? Um, compassion. I don't remember. Anyway, there's <laughs> three legs. <laughs> Um, uh, wisdom. I'm sorry. Sila, samadhi, impression. Okay. So this is the the precepts, the moral and ethical perspectives, are based on the other two legs on our practice of samadhi and zazen and seeing into the emptiness of all things and the wisdom that comes out of that and then comes forth into the relative world. So the relative world is very relative. All situations are different and unique. And that's the challenge of applying our practice in each unique situation. You know, and the point it says when his great function manifests before you, it doesn't hold or keep to patterns and rules, which is the temptation, right? Here's the rule. Here's what the precept says. Um, the, you know, don't kill, cherish your life. So what does that actually mean? Um, and so on through the precepts. I mean, what is that? how does that actually function? And so not to stick to the rule and yet respect the rule, understand the rule. And so how we manifest a moral life in this relatively variable, ongoing world of very variable morality is very challenging. 
you know, if you're in the workplace, the workplace is not usually based, no matter what the, it's said, what it puts forth, as a moral and ethical place. You know, more and more you see businesses saying, well, that's the law. You know, I'm within the law. So if uh, an airline company builds a, uh, an airline uh, passenger plane that repeatedly crashes, they say, well, we met all the inspections, you know, as if it's not their responsibility. It's not, not their moral obligation. And of course, if the, the people who set the laws are, uh, and the rules are themselves subject to an amorality that does not prize the very people that they're designed to protect, that they're empowered to protect us, then what is moral? What is immoral? What's, what's the law? Is the law our safeguard? Well, what is your safeguard? So the point just says, when his great function manifests before you, it doesn't keep to patterns and rules. And nor does it ignore patterns and rules. We have to live out of our own practice, out of our own responsibility for our life, out of our own decisions. And we can ask questions of ourselves and others in difficult times. In fact, we should be obliged to do that. We should discern what is moral behavior, what is ethical behavior, and what is that based on? since it's not based strictly on the rule, the rules or guidelines. So here are some of the questions that are worth asking ourselves. In this particular situation, what is the most compassionate action I can do that upholds the basic realization of practice? And what is that basic realization? That amidst the differences, there's one whole being, if you will, there's a wholeness to this. You know, another way of expressing it is you and I are one, but I'm not you and you're not me. How do we see into that in our daily life? How do I hold everyone in this circumstance, leaving no one out? So in difficult situations, how do I give each person each aspect of the situation, it's due, leaving no one out, and yet make a moral and ethical choice, which inherently is going to choose in some specific direction. And thus, if you want to use this word, give to that and not give to to this. And how do you do that? What does it mean to act and speak with compassionate kindness that is not idiot compassion? So idiot kindness is the sweetness. Oh, you know, this is so wonderful. You are so wonderful. Etc. Some idea of how we should be kind or the other person should be kind. So that's called idiot compassion. Do I understand some of the possible consequences of my decision in this situation? Or even not understanding them. Am I, am, I, am I okay with those consequences? You know, I, again, over and over, you see in politics and in the corporate world where something, somebody does something dumb, stupid, bad, harmful, and they say, I take responsibility for that. What does that mean that I take responsibility? Other than the statement, I take responsibility for that. What does that actually mean? Is there any meaning to it? 
other than the, the PR for it. Do we understand that to take responsibility means to recognize that in any difficult situation, I have some contribution to this difficulty? There's no difficult situation in which you're free of some contribution to it. I've never seen that. So sometimes you have to really look at that. So when honoring that you and I are different, how can I manifest those differences within the unity of our being that is the fundamental truth? And that's what this practice is cultivating. It's cultivating that we experience for ourselves the unity of our being, all beings throughout space and time, all Buddhas, all Bodhisattvas. That is the fundamental truth. And so how do I manifest that amidst the differences in this relative world? So monastic asked Tozu, all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha, right or wrong? And Tozu said, right. Of course, all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. It's a given. Everything is Buddha nature. Everything is inherently that. Nothing's excluded from Buddha nature. But what is Buddha nature anyway? What does it look like? What color is it? What shape is it? How big is it? How small is it? Where do you find it? What are we talking about here? We've been studying the Four Noble Truths in the Sangha, the the starting point of acknowledging that life as we ordinarily experience it, the way our mind ordinarily discriminates inherently, creates anxiety, suffering, pain, difficulty, separation. It's a given. I, I say it's a given, but it's amazing how we really would really like not to acknowledge that. You know, if only I had this, then life would be good. If only that person didn't do that, then I'd be fine, I'd be whole. I wouldn't suffer. And the other three truths, which and all of them are entwined, of the cause of that, which basically is our sense of a separate self and the endless desires for something outside ourself that we're always endlessly seeking or avoiding. And the third, which we looked at this Thursday night, was the possibility of addressing that. The possibility of of seeing into our fundamental nature, our Buddha nature, which holds the unity of all things that that is possible. And the fourth is here's how, the Eightfold Noble Path. Here's how. Follow this path, but make it yours. It's not a cookbook. It doesn't keep to patterns and rules, but doesn't ignore patterns and rules. And so the realization of this is awakening. It's an awakening to the true nature of reality. It's awakening to our true nature, who we are. 
It's very personal. It's not some idea. It's not some theory. You're not going to find this in a book. There's a lot of ways that nirvana has been described. But I think a good way to, des- to describe it is the end of suffering. A non-struggling mind that is peaceful is a possibility. Even when there's some struggle. That sounds contradictory, but it's not. There may be struggle, but your fundamental sense of being is not disturbed. And they may be struggle because there may need to be struggle in this relative world. There's a lot of injustice, a lot of unfairness. It's kind of built in, if you will, to the deluded point of view. So power tends to seek more power. And that power that is accumulated, of course, takes away power from others. And we live in this world. And it's pretty obvious when you look around. Who has power? Who doesn't? In all the many shades, colors, and kinds. So this monastic is coming up and asking a question. And it's pretty clear it's not an innocent question. It's kind of a... They're setting something up. They're provoking something. And the footnote to this question, so the question says, all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha, right or wrong? And Tosu says, right. The footnote to this says, the monastic knows how to grab the tiger's whispers. Crashing thunderclaps in a clear sky, he doesn't notice the bad smell of his own shit. You know, he's coming up with a not innocent question. He doesn't see that's himself. That's a provocation. Where is that kind of question coming from? could be coming from a very serious and clear place. A real desire to know. But, you know, given the topic of his question and how it's framed, one, I think, can be suspicious of that. And Tozu, interestingly enough, says, right, of course. Sure, it's right. All sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. But there's more to this. Tozu is a great master. He's not an innocent. And yet he's saying right. And the footnote says of that response, he's utterly swindling ordinary people. He sold his body to you. He's put it over to one side in answering that way. It's only showing one side. What's going on in your mind? That's directed towards Tozu. What's going on in your mind, great teacher? The Masik says, teacher, doesn't your asshole make farting sounds? And the implication is, since all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha, isn't your fart the sound of the Buddha? What do you think? Consider it from this perspective. What would make it the sound of the Buddha or not the sound of the Buddha? You know, some years ago, 
without naming any names, but it's not me. Um, <laughs> there was a person, and they were a Jukai student, who sat and attended Sashin regularly, and in the midst of a sitting, sometimes Sashin would just let go. And, you know, so once that can happen, you know, to any of us, and probably has happened to all of us in some somewhat difficult circumstances, but this happened <laughs> repeatedly. And at some point it becomes apparent that this person is just letting it go without consideration of anyone else or themselves or what's going on or is this, what is going on here? I don't know what happened, but suddenly it stopped. (laughs) So I don't know if one of the teachers talked to him or someone applied a cork or what happened. (laughs) But clearly, this was not a way to understand this as coming from a wholehearted expression of the Dharma. Clearly, this was self-centered, at least to my nose. (laughs) So what's going on in your mind when something like this happens to you or to someone else? Is this the sound of the Buddha or is not? Or is it not? And what makes it the sound of the Buddha or not? Or is the monastic asking this question in this way itself off the mark? You know, it matters what questions we ask. It's important. That's where we direct our attention, our mind. And it's important to ask questions that are helpful to us, that shine light on who we are. All our questions shine light on who we are, but given that this is a spiritual practice, that shine light on, on helping us awaken. That's the kind of questions I said some questions that can be helpful in that regard. So if the question is off the mark, why did Totsu agree? All sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. Why did he say yes? Because certainly, fundamentally, all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. Whether that's realized or not by that monastic or you and I is a very different question. Fundamentally, all delusions are the delusions of the Buddha. All sufferings are the sufferings of the Buddha. Nothing's excluded. So, he added in parenthesis, you don't get to cut out the parts of yourself you don't like because you don't consider it the parts of the Buddha. I mean, you do, but suffering will result. So, keep that in mind when you make judgments about yourself and therefore others. So, Tosu agrees all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. Yes, and the footnote to that says he just sees that the the all, A-W-L, point is sharp. He doesn't see that the chisel edge is square. What is he saying? After all, he suffers defeat. That's referring to the monastic. He's just seeing one side. And the teachers agree. Isn't that interesting? So why then did Tozu hit him? So just to review, 
the monastic asked, all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha, right or wrong? Tosu said, right. Teacher, doesn't your asshole make farting sounds? And Tosu hit him. But he'd agreed all sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. Why did he hit him? Sometimes a hit, like a Kiyosaku, the way the Kiyosaku is used, is not a punishment as much as pointing out to the students that they're missing something important. Sometimes a hit in Zen is to directly point to the student, directly point to the source, the student, and to bring that to to their attention. It's usually an answer to a question. Teachers always answer the question. Maybe not in the way you expect, but they're always answering the question. So he hits him, and the footnote says, a hit. He should be hit. It won't do to let him go. Teachers doing their job. He's showing something in that hit. And the koan repeats again the monastic ass. Coarse words or subtle talk all return to the primary meaning, right or wrong. Isn't everything we say fundamentally the words of the Buddha? Containing Buddha nature, coming from Buddha nature, in the absolute sense? Sure, Tose says, right. And the monastic says, well, if that's true, can't I call you an ass teacher? And Tozu then hit him again. So the commentary says, Tozu was plain and truthful. He had the eloquence which stood out from the crowd. Whenever a question was put to him, you saw his guts as soon as he opened his mouth. This monastic had taken their views of sound and form from Buddhism and stuck it to their forehead wherever they met someone. And he would immediately ask about that. So you've met people. You may know people. You may be this one. You know something about something. And wherever you go, there's my information. There's my knowledge about something. Or maybe it's a subject. I was. What came up for me just now is uh, the description of uh, a surgeon. So my my son is a, a cardiac catheterization, which is invasive surgery, and I was uh, a foot surgeon. And the description is uh, um, always. Always aggressive, always direct, sometimes right. (laughs) Some variation of that. I have it a little off, but yeah. And that's, by the way, easy to be. And, you know, if you've studied and practiced Zen for a while, it's easy to be in that position. Um, And uh, Daito Roshi would always say, don't believe your own PR which is, I think, good advice. But Tozu, an adept, profoundly discerned oncoming winds. Knowing that Tozu was truthful, this monastic from the start was making a trap for him to go to. It was this 
kind of a setup, but it's an important setup. In the midst of Zazen, in the depths of Zazen, when the door opens to the living possibility of seeing something about the wholeness of being, of our being, of your being, how can we arise from our cushion and see into and make visible the inherent goodness of what we're seeing? Make that alive, because it is inherently good. For evil to exist, it actually, evil, separation, distance, harm, has to be created. It's not there innately. The first pure precept says, avoid doing evil. You have to do it, make it. And the inherent goodness of who we are can't come from patterns and knowledge. We have to ascertain as best we can what is the truth that manifests the truth? What is the way that manifests what is real and true? And I basically said this before in a different way. How do we manifest that in the midst of the confusion of our life in this particular situation and be responsible for that? So what is it that the monastic isn't seeing? I mean, each time the answer was yes. And each time he got hit, what's happening here? This monastic has taken their views of sound and form from Buddhism. He's taken the teachings from Buddhism. All sounds are the sounds of the Buddha. And stuck them to their forehead. And whenever they met someone, they would immediately ask about it, or perhaps tell about it, or challenge about it. So how fixed is that understanding? How malleable is that understanding? How, how flexible? How, how can true compassion be present if we only have one way to understand something? Because no situation is ever the same as another situation. All situations, by definition, as a situation, are different and unique. So what is the most compassionate action that we can take in this situation? And to ask that question in an honest way of ourselves, we have to be aware of our own mind. We have to be aware of our own conditioning, of our own, own response. And we can do that. We can have feelings, emotions and thoughts, which reject the current situation or make a judgment about a person in front of us or a self and see that clearly and respond out of an open heart of compassion. We can do that. That's a practice. It's a practice to do that. And we can also have those same feelings towards ourselves and others and just stop there. That's, we're blocked, we're locked in. That's all we know. I don't know anything else. There's no other possibilities. What comes out of that is a response that creates a karma that is not felicitous, that is not generous. 
it can even wear the face of being gentle and kind, but isn't. And that communicates too. I don't know if you've met people who go around and their immediate reaction is to anything. is a big smile, you know. Uh, and, or a yes, when everything in the body is communicating no. And so this is where we can stick when our understanding of the teacher, teachings is rooted in our thoughts about the teachings rather than our own direct experience, our own inherent wisdom. And really what's being asked here is how can we be firmly rooted in, the fundam- in our fundamental wisdom, this wonderful non-dual dharma, which rests in emptiness, no-thingness, or wholeness, the other side of the coin of emptiness. And yet manifests in each individual particle of existence, each situation as true wisdom and true compassion. How do you actually see out of your own Buddha eyes, out of your own eyes of Avalokiteshvara? Something has to be let go of to do that. Not ignored, not suppressed, not even devalued, but just not held up as the way that we are, the way this monastic is. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. When the monastic and the stuckness says, can I call you an ass? That's being stuck in the idea of equality. Not in equality, in the idea of equality. That's not good. Equality by itself is dead. It's non-responsive. There's no compassion in equality. It can't function. So we have to practice the practice of taking a practice off the cushion. We actually have to practice that. We have to enter into the world and see the challenges and decisions before us as a practice, not as an accomplishment. Because we haven't accomplished anything because the next challenge is right before us. Life being life. So there's no accomplishment to that. It's a practice. We do the best we can. We use our practice our zazen, the sense of equanimity that can come out of that to the best of our ability, which we may or may not have some sense of in that moment. We use a faith in our own intent to act as compassionately as we can, which is much, with as much wisdom. Wisdom means non-duality here. And so to have faith in ourselves in the situation, even when it goes, quote, bad, and to further inquire, to have the courage to do that, there's no small thing. We have to actually discern for ourselves and apply it in our own interactions with each other, how we communicate, how we manifest our practice in this complicated world. 
and not be fooled by our or others' intellectual condition responses. And yet hold that. Not be fooled, but also hold it, not reject it. So why is the monastic being stuck in equality false? Aren't all things one? Well, no. They're not. Well, then, aren't all things two? Well, no. They're not. What is this? Who are you? Are you one or are you two? Do you fall into one or two? Each human being is of, a, is of infinite complexity, more than we can possibly know. We say things like the stuff of stars. Well, we are. Scientifically speaking, we are. But think of the levels of how we can't know what makes us up and who we are, fundamentally. We know a lot about a little. You know, that's what we know. But we're far from the whole thing. We'll never know the whole thing. Well, aside from producing some humility, it also can produce some awareness of the vastness of who we are and thus who the other person is and why limit it to persons. All beings throughout time and space just doesn't refer to sentient human beings. All bodhisattvas, mahasattvas. It's interesting, the, you know, there's a lot of research and therefore what's coming out of that is some public uh, articles on the wisdom of trees, the interconnectivity of trees, which in some way we've always known, but somehow didn't know. You know, things like when you're raising a particular kind of tree or bush and you cut down what you don't want, those trees or bushes don't do well. Isn't that interesting? What's the implication there? Or, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, how, in the scientific level, they couldn't get small enough actually in the soil to see this until recently, that within a forest, all the trees are interconnected. And when one tree gets ill or sick or attacked, the other trees send resources to it, nutrients to it. And they say trees are not intelligent. Maybe we don't understand what intelligence means. So how do we transcend the difference between absolute and relative, between wholeness and differentiation, and uphold a a morality that is not just relative, and not just absolute, but specific to this situation. So Tozu shows us when he responds. Why do you say yes? He knew what was coming. He knew something was coming. Why do you say no? You're wrong. You're heading down the wrong track. But no. I mean, what a great master. Okay. Ask a question. Sure. Sure. If you say so. But then he hits him. What do you think he's showing when he hits him? No, you're wrong. 
Where's the wholeness in Tosei's? I mean, koans are not about relative teachings. They may be about that to some extent, and this one is. But always at its heart is the wholeness of our being. Tozu stands completely present in the unity of form and emptiness. You can't find him. Is he in form or is he in emptiness? And this is how personal and responsive our wisdom is when we function out of our true nature, how compassionate it is. Yamada Roshi commented on this koan. He says, Tose's answer, right, right, transcends all distinctions of difference and equality. This is our breath. Our breath transcends all distinctions of difference and equality. It's just the breath. There's nothing else. This is Chow Cho's moo. It's just moo. There's nothing else. He says, difference is the phenomenal world where everything is separate and distinct. Equality is the essential world, which is totally empty. But these two are actually one and the same. The essential and phenomenal are actually one and the same. How does that manifest? In you yourself. As you. That's the practice realization. That's what we're doing here. So it's okay to say there are essentially no distinctions and realize that. But we must never forget the aspect of the phenomenal world, of this relative world in which there is suffering. Because if we forget that, there'll be more suffering. There are important distinctions which should be made and observed. It's not okay to call the teacher an ass. Although I can envision circumstances where it might be. That's not an invitation. But if those actions where the teacher is called an ass come out of compassionate, compassion and real understanding, then there's no problem. It's fine. That's the right thing to do, perhaps, in that situation. I wouldn't rule it out. So our task is to navigate our life, to use our zazen as the the doorway into our wholeness. Use the precepts. Use the samadhi that comes out of practice. And the wisdom, which is unnameable and in a sense unknowable, and yet functions as our life. Teacher, doesn't your asshole make farting sounds? Perhaps a good response to that is, let's practice our ass off. Let's continue to be open to what we cannot see with the eyes of differentiation. And let that inform us. Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. 
learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash Project. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.